0: Course, this being the last Sunday in October, uh, we often reflect upon the Reformation. Of course, October 31, 1517, Martin Luther, church door, all the rest, you know, uh, the general history. And so, this weekend, it's always a good time to reflect upon some of these matters. And one of the features of the Reformers was that they understood the importance of passing on the baton thinking of a relay race in some athletic realm, passing the baton on to colleagues who had been discipled under the older man. They understood the need to pass on the truth. You think of Philip Melanchthon, who led the Lutheran cause after the death of Luther, or Theodore Beza, who again followed Calvin in Geneva, or Bullinger, who followed Zwingli in Switzerland, or Knox, falling in the footsteps of Wishart in Scotland. You see this pattern throughout Europe. These great reformed centers, and there was the passing on of the pattern. Now, there are some things that this highlights. It reminds us, praise God, it reminds us, and that God is pleased to continue His work in succeeding generations that the candle, though at times will burn dimly, it is never extinguished. You know, there were times, of course, in the time prior, to the Reformation, that the candle was barely flickering. Such was the problems of apostasy in the world. And that barely, the light of the gospel could barely be seen. But God fanned into flame in the Reformation, and the light continues to this day in the mercies of God. He's a covenantal God of faithfulness. Great is God's faithfulness. Faithful to his name, to preserve his word, his work, and his worship. Generations, they will know various measures of God's blessing. Some will see great outpourings of the Spirit of God. Others will be holding on by their fingernails to truth, as it were. But every generation knows God's preserving grace. It's also worth noting that God's work in light of this continues when men go to glory. No one is indispensable. You imagine the lamentation and the death of Calvin, and you think of all that he had contributed. What a loss, they would think. But God's work continues in His grace and in His favor. That's why I believe in part that godly men will take the time to invest in younger men. That's a spiritual instinct. And we see it in the Reformation because these men are men of God. And so in their spiritual instincts given to them by God, they understand the importance of passing on truth to the next generation. Passing on the ministry to faithful men who will also in turn teach others. Second Timothy 2 and the verse number 2. Such a commitment, I believe, is a work of grace. One of the challenges that men sometimes face is the need to pass on the work. It can be difficult to labor for many, many years, and it can be a challenge to pass the work on to the next generation. But by God's grace, that is what happens. And by God's grace, men will give themselves their time and their energy for the next generation. It's the work of God's grace, but it's a work in light of the Scriptures. When you study the Scriptures, this can Flows out naturally. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, Paul and Timothy. See, we need to pass on the work of God. It should be at the very forefront of our minds as how we can pass on truth to the next generation. That, in the language of Psalm seventy-eight, they would put their hope in God. This recognition, again, that we must commit ourselves prayerfully and financially to the work of training ministers in the gospel. Again, today, it's, well, what a joy it is to think of a young man accepting a call to a, denom- to a congregation, one who was saved by God's grace and called into the ministry and has been trained. And men have put time and energy into his training to help him that he would then be an able minister of the gospel. That's what it is to be part of Christ's church. And it should be a burden upon all of our souls. You see, our task today is to consider Paul's heart for Timothy. He's coming to the end of his life in ministry. The time of his departure is drawing at hand. And he, he's passing on truth. And he's passing on the ministry again to Timothy. And so we get an insight into the cause of God and truth. And so what we're going to do today is we're going we're to kind of wander through these verses at the opening part of this chapter, the greetings that Paul gives to Timothy. Again, he goes back to the regular form, verse 2 To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. And just two very simple thoughts today. First of all, I want to think about Paul's influence in Timothy's life. Now, to do that, it will help us if we think a little bit about Timothy's heritage. Now, you, you go back to Acts chapter 16, and you'll see there the first uh, reference to Timothy, Acts 16. Paul's coming to Derby and Lystra, and there was a certain disciple there named Timotheus. Acts 16, verse 1. He was the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed. Of course, we know his mother's name was Eunice, and his father was a Greek. So his heritage, he's been raised... As we'll see, very shortly, raised under the care of a mother who knew the Scriptures and delighted to pass the Scriptures on. You know, I think in some ways it illustrates some of the things we thought about in Bible class this morning. That God is pleased to honor a godly woman in a difficult context as she seeks to faithfully pass on the Word of God. Supported ably by her mother. Generations passing on the word of the Lord. You see, you go across to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the verse 15, you will see there that Paul, again reflecting upon Timothy's testimony, says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't think this requires the fact that Eunice and Lois necessarily were Christians at this time. They may well have been faithful Jews, godly, devout Jews, who knew the Old Testament Scriptures, because that's what's involved here. The Holy Scriptures is a reference to the Old Testament writings, which, by the way, are more than able to bring people to Christ Jesus. It's the passing comment we'll get there in our future studies. And so, Timothy's raised in this context, likely with a devout Jewish mother who was practicing her faith despite being married to a Gentile. That's important, isn't it? That she was strong in her commitment, regardless of what was happening in her home life, she was strong to pass on the Word of God. You see, you cannot miss the point. You've got to see again afresh the importance of scriptural instruction the imparting of God's Word to the children. You know there are children who are raised in godly homes and they will, they will make the point that their childhood was a brainwashing exercise. They reject the truth of God's Word, don't they? And they say, they come to their parents and they say, well, all you've done is you've tried to brainwash us into believing what you believe. You didn't give us the freedom to decide for ourselves. We were forced to study the Scriptures. We were forced to consider the Word of God. We all know this happens in reality. And they come to the point that they believe that they have been, and I use this carefully but deliberately, they believe they've been abused by the Word of God. They use such language. It's abhorrent. But it happens. You see, what's happened to them is that they've allowed themselves to be brainwashed by the world in which they live. You cannot live in this world without being influenced. You know this term, influencers. This whole modern social media idea. Our children are being influenced by this world. They have them in their hands, their cell phone, and they're continually being influenced by influencers. And those influencers are generally not good influencers. And so they're raised in the idea that, well, what matters is a liberty to think for ourselves. The liberty to come up with our own ideas, to be free. But the Word of God is very clear that there is only one influence that matters. And that is the Word of God being given by godly parents to a godly seed. That's the influence that is the influence of truth and not a lie. And so as parents, we ought not to ever be embarrassed or ashamed by teaching the Word of God by homeschooling, by Christian schooling, whatever it might be in terms of our desire to get the Word of God into our children because it's very, very clear it's the Word of God that God uses to bring faith. And so the Word of God is implanted into the child and that Paul highlights that. He says, this is a good thing. Now, he's not suggesting for a second that only children raised in the Word can be saved. Praise God, he's able to save an 80 year old man who's never heard the word of God. That's the miracles of God's grace and His favor and His mercy. But ordinarily, God is pleased covenantally to pass the word of God on from generation to generation as the word of God is imparted to young minds and they come to convictions, yes, What I've been told is true. And they come by God's grace to trust in Christ and believe the gospel. Is it any wonder that there are so few believers in this nation when children have been raised without the word of God being ever imparted to their minds? And the tragedy of even evangelical churches taking children out into children's church and this and that and playing games with them Without ever seeking to diligently impart the Word of God into their minds, we dumb down the Word of God and we dumb down the next generation. So pray much about this and be faithful in your own obligations in this regard. Because Timothy, having been taught the Word of God, was clearly then influenced by Paul to come to faith in Christ Jesus. It seems to be the case that he did not come to faith in that home environment. So why does Paul highlight it? Well, because it's really important. It's a blessing of God. He's reminding again that though this young man does not come to faith in his home, the home life is so very, very important in what happens next. And what happens next? He comes encountering with Paul. He hears the gospel and he's saved because Paul refers to him as his dearly beloved son, verse number 2. Now, there's There's certainly some uncertainty as to how this all comes about. But the language that Paul uses here is generally, ordinarily used for someone that he's being used of God to bring to Christ. I'm not suggesting it's the only possibility, but I think it is the most likely. You go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1 verse number 2. Or it's even more emphatic unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. You see the language used there, the importance of that language. He, he is certainly indicating that Timothy is his beloved son. Right, turn back to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, this language is also used for the and Philemon. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the verse number 17, it says this, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. He's referring to Timothy. But note the preceding context. Look at verse number 15. For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, wherefore, I beseech you, be false with me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timothy, Timotheus, who is my beloved son. You see the thought line there? That Paul is in, emphasizing that he was used in the birth of the Corinthian church. And in the same language, he was used in the spiritual birth of Timothy. I think that seems to be the pattern and the understanding of that portion. So back in 2 Timothy, when Paul says to Timothy, To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, I think he's underscoring the influence that Paul had in Timothy's conversion. How how do people come to Christ? You should ask that question. It's an important question to ask because surely that is our desire, that souls would come to Christ Jesus. Jesus. Well, they have the scriptures given to them. They're, they're given the Word of God, and they come to know the Word of God. And in time, they have the Word of God explained to them. The Ethiopian eunuch. He has the scriptures, but he's, he's at a loss, not quite sure what it all means. And Philip comes along and he opens up his mind. This is what it means. And that is the ordinary means that God uses to bring souls to Christ Jesus. People come along. It may happen in the church. It may happen in the child's bedside. It may happen anywhere else. It may happen in the public square. It may happen. But what happens is people say, This is God's word, and this is what it means. And that's why it's very, very important to keep on passing what it means to future generations. That the generation to come may be told, this is the word of God and this is what it means. And we've got to be faithful and do all we can, by God's grace, to keep on passing that on. Because that is how God brings souls to Christ, through human agency. Is that necessary? Well, by inference, yes. Because that's how God does it. So in God's favor, he does it this way. He uses human instrumentality to bring the word of God. Do you think how dreadful the error was of some who taught that the lost nations could be saved without the word? They taught that idea. Well, they just put put death to all missions. No need for any missions evermore. And you know, if a sinner can be converted without knowing the word, don't ever, ever tell the sinner the word you've now made them responsible. Without hearing the gospel, they could have been saved by God's mercy. But now they've heard it. If they reject it, they're lost. You see how crazy the liberal thought is here? It is so out of kilt with God's word. And so therefore, we are those who have the right and the privilege to be used of God, to pass on the word of God. Mothers to children, grandparents to their grandchildren, Pastor to people, all of these human agencies used of God to bring souls to Christ Jesus. Reformation Day. Calvin says this. in his commentary on Second Timothy, Paul had, had sorry, Paul had begotten him in Christ, for although this honor belongs to God alone, yet it is also transferred to ministers whose agency he employs for regenerating us. Wow, you've got to read that carefully. He's not suggesting for a second that we have the power of regeneration. But God is pleased to use the word. Do you think of 1 Peter? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Just one illustration of this. 1 Peter chapter 1, referring to the word of God. And here this just underscores the accuracy of Calvin's language here. As he says to the God, uses the agency to regenerate us. Verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. So there's the word of God that's used. And we see that the scriptures, they, they're used of God to bring people to rebirth. Yeah, it says, verse 25, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. God using human agency. So we see here Paul's influence in Timothy's life. May God give us sons and daughters in the faith. May God be pleased to give us a spiritual heritage in this place. The recognition that souls will come to the house of God and say, I was born there, sitting in a pew, born there, born of God there under the preaching of God's word. And for some of you, I know the burden you have for your families. Pray that you'd have a true son in the faith, a true daughter in the faith born supernaturally, spiritually, through the agency of your care as a parent in their lives. as Paul's influence. It's God's purpose. Secondly, please note Paul's intercession for Timothy. And here you see that this greeting is in the form of prayer. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, here you get an insight into what a loving relationship looks like What's it look like when you have such a dynamic relationship? My beloved son, I'm praying for you. You see, there are degrees of strength in human relationships. Put it this way, we don't love all people equally. There are different relationships in in the human sphere. But Christian love will always begat prayer. Why do I say that? Because Christ prays for us. The word of God tells us Christ loves the church. And we see Christ praying for the church. You see, so you can tell people you love them. You can say, I-, I love my church family here in Malvern. But church love, Christian love will always bring about prayer. Prayer. And so if you find yourself in a situation where you're not praying for your brothers and sisters in the church, there are a couple of possibilities. But one tragic possibility is that you don't love them as you say you love them. Oh yeah, you may be forgetful, there may be a lack of teaching, understanding, but ordinarily when you come to know the Lord and you're part of a Christian church and you say, beloved, then that will always bring about prayer for the other party. And so as we look at this prayer, you'll note again I have in the outline there five, five very straightforward comments regarding the matter of this prayer. First of all, the setting of prayer. It comes in the setting of Paul's desire to see, Timothy, greatly desiring to see thee, verse 4, be mindful of thy tears. Timothy's tears, Again, not entirely sure this may have happened at Miletus when the elders were called from Ephesus. Remember it says there, they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. But the sense here surely shows us the heart of Paul. A tender heart. I said last time that one of the things you see in Second Timothy is you see a man of God showing compassion without compromise. Growing in Christ's likeness as age increases but never losing a tender spirit. And he's this desire. He he wants to be filled with joy again at seeing seeing Timothy. And so again, I just underscore the principle that the setting of this prayer reminds us again that prayer reflects our hearts. Love begets prayer. Secondly, in the spirit of prayer, the spirit of prayer here is, again, given to us, verse number three, sorry, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. There's, there's so much in this. But the spirit of prayer does come with a clear conscience before God, first of all. There is purity of conscience. I'll say more about the forefathers later. But for now, just note the importance of a good conscience before God when it comes to prayer. That was Paul's burden back in Acts 24. And again, he mentions in his ministry, he's very, very clear. Acts 24 and the verse number 16 And he says there, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. A very important part of of Christian living is having a good conscience. I think in part, Paul, Paul is encouraging Timothy that though he is in prison for the gospel, he is not in prison outside of God's will. He's been obedient, and so we'll see later on that well, is Timothy somewhat ashamed of Paul in prison? see, it be not thou therefore ashamed. And so perhaps Paul in part is saying, well, my conscience is pure, I'm serving God. But however, we do see the importance when it comes to prayer. He's referring to prayer here. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. I wonder if some of you, you find yourself in your Christian life and you You know you've succumbed to a particular sin, and perhaps for a a period of time. And you could stand here and say, my conscience was so defiled I could not pray before God. We recognize the holiness of God. We recognize that God is pure. We will not look upon iniquity, and so it's important that we remind ourselves of the need to have a pure conscience when it comes to pray. That doesn't mean we earn God's ear by being good people. That's not the point. Because how do you get a pure conscience? Well, first of all, it's cleansed in the blood of Christ. That's where it begins. A pure conscience does not begin by you being a very good person and not doing anything wrong in your eyes. You see, a conscience, to be good, it has to be informed by the Word of God. It's a scriptural conscience. But a sensitive conscience Aware, your conscience may smite you when you sin and excuse you when you live uprightly. But that all arises out of what it is to be in Christ Jesus. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses our conscience from its guilt. But from that foundation, there is the recognition, I want to be in prayer, therefore I want to live uprightly. That's a good thing to want. Conscience. But also note in the spirit of prayer, it is in the spirit of thanksgiving. Verse 3, I thank God. Now here, what you've got to understand is that there is a jumping ahead in the text in verse 5. So I thank God, and then there's kind of a discussion there. And then verse number 5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee. Unfeigned. Without hypocrisy. That's the language that's used here. And there is the word that we get our word hypocrisy from, uh, with the prefix before that, without hypocrisy, the idea without a mask. In the acting world, the actors put a mask on. They were not themselves on the stage because they wore a mask. But Paul is saying to Timothy, I know that you're the real deal. That what I see is what I am. What, what I see is what you are. You're not pretending in the faith. Similar words are used back in First Timothy uh, chapter 1, regarding the work of the law in our hearts. First Timothy 1, verse number 5. The end of the law, the purpose of the law, is charity, of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, without hypocrisy. Sincerity in a Christian living is something that comes by God's grace alone. If people are religious and unconverted... Their religion is of the flesh. Hypocrisy is the natural state of man when it comes to religion. So you get people who who come to church and they do all the things upright. They they sing and they bow their heads to pray and they carry the right Bible and they, they come to the house of God. But if they are doing so as the unconverted, but pretending to be converted, that's of the flesh, not the spirit. Because it's only God's grace that produces sincerity. And so Paul sees sincerity. He says, "I thank God because only God can produce sincerity." So, if you're here pretending, you know nothing of God's grace. And if you're here sincerely, that's only by God's grace. You didn't deserve it. But if you're here and you can say, with Peter, "Thou knowest all things. I knowest that I love thee, that my heart is where my heart is." That's all of God's grace. I'm That's incredible that God would enable us to be sincere in these things. And so Paul comes to pray, and he would pray for Timothy with a clear conscience and a thankful heart. You know, because thanksgiving is so very, very important when it comes to prayer. Just pick someone right now, anybody in the church here. Just in your mind, in your mind's eye, pick someone in this congregation, part of the work of God here. And you're going to pray for them. Not right now. You're just thinking about them right now. But in the future you may pray for them. And they come to your mind. If you begin with thanksgiving, that will greatly impact how you pray for them. Because when you say, I thank the Lord, and you you put the person's name in right now, I thank the Lord for this person, what you're recognizing is you're recognizing that already God has worked in them in His grace. Therefore, you have the assurance as you pray, they're a child of God, they're loved of God, Christ's blood avails for them, and they have the gift of the Spirit of God. And so as you pray for them from thanksgiving, how that reinforces the content of your prayers. And you'll pray in a way with great hope. Perhaps you see, perhaps the person you're praying for right now is in a very bad place. You know they're sincere, but some real problems, and you see them in a very difficult place, perhaps health wise, or perhaps even spiritually. And you, you see themselves in a very difficult place, and you go before God in prayer, and you go, All is lost. This is what they were, but now look what they are now, and it's, it's hopeless. But you say, I thank God for that person because of the Word of God in their life, how that reinforces and puts a foundation in your prayers that I believe will be tremendously helpful as you pray for that person. It's good to pray in the right spirit, with a pure conscience and a thankful heart. And so as God's people, it is our responsibility to look at each other and try to see God's grace in each other's lives. The the Christian church generally has spectacles upon their face whereby the spectacles magnify the sins of the others and diminish the grace in the others. And so we look at each other and we, woo, look how massive that sin is! And we fail to see what God has done in grace and His mercy. You see, Paul is here thanking God for Timothy, who is young, weak, timid, perhaps even ashamed of his testimony, and he still says, I thank God for your unfeigned faith. It's amazing. It's a Christ-like heart that will not compromise, but still knows the compassion of the Savior. That's the spirit of prayer. What about the supplications offered? The supplications offered. Well, here again, our time has really marched on this morning. But the supplications offered, three of them. Grace, mercy, and peace. Very simply, grace. Well, grace, of course, refers to those undeserved favors that we know by grace. Are you saved? But usually, when it's used in this way by Paul at the beginning and the end of a letter, it refers to the strength that comes from God. My grace is sufficient, strength made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That idea of grace as God's undeserved strengthening of the believer. That's a good prayer to pray. Grace, mercy. Again, as we often define grace as undeserved favor, we often define mercy as not receiving what we deserve. We deserve wrath. We don't receive that. That's mercy. and That's all well and good and true. And it may well be that Paul is praying for Timothy in light of Timothy's sins. There's a need for mercy. Even as a believer, we need mercy. But it's also possible that the word here, mercy, that's used in the New Testament is the equivalent of the Old Testament word hesed, the loving kindness of God. And the Greek word mercy here, it is often used to translate that Old Testament concept of God's covenantal faithfulness, His loving kindnesses, His mercies. And so it may well be the case that Paul is praying for Timothy in the light of Timothy's need to have God's abiding mercies. You know, we can pray in the promise of God. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Great is thy faithfulness. And so as he pray for each other, grace, give them strength, mercy. May they know God's covenantal faithfulness in their lives and may they enjoy it. Peace, peace thirdly. Grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy's a saved man. He's unfeigned faith. He knows the Savior. And so as he knows the Savior, the peace here is not peace with God, but the peace of God. Not the anxiety, not the troubled spirit. Christ says, my peace I leave with you. Let not your heart be troubled. Anxiety, fears, concerns, they disturb peace. But God gives us peace in the gospel. Peace. So these prayers are for Timothy personally. They are prayed, yes, for saints generally, prayed to the Colossians, prayed for the Ephesians, but here they are prayed for saints like Timothy personally. Now, Timothy is held in great esteem by Paul. He says, The Philippians, I have no man like minded who will naturally care for your state. All seek their own, but not Timothy. Timothy's a great man of God. But this prayer indicates that Paul knows that Timothy stands in need of prayer. The old song, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Timothy could say, it's me, it's me, O Paul, standing in the need of prayer. Timid by nature. It's implied, I think, in verse number 7. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, timidity, the idea there. Perhaps ashamed of Paul's imprisonment, verse number 8. In poor health, 1 Timothy 5. Young, let no man despise you for your youth, 1 Timothy 4. You see all the problems that Timothy has? He's a mighty man of God, but it's all of these things about him. And he stands in need of prayer. What is, what is the solution to your problems when we're fearful and sick? And ashamed of the gospel, and we're young and immature, what is the need in those times? It's grace, it's mercy, it's peace. So take these prayers for each other, please. Take them for me. Make these prayer requests for me and for each other going forward. Give them strength, grace, give them mercy, your faithful kindness. Give them the peace of God, the past understanding. Give your people, my beloved sister, my beloved brother, give them these things in grace. The source of blessing. That's the third thing in your notes. Again, I skipped out of the way of the notes there, but it's a source of blessing. Nobody says it's from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The Father, the Giver. Again, our relationship, not of a stranger, but of a son. We come before our heavenly Father, our Father, which art in heaven. And we do so through Christ, Jesus, our Lord. You know, there are different ways to pray. We have the model prayer of the Lord's prayer given to the disciples. But here's a way to pray. And if you begin your prayers this way, I think you'll be greatly helped at times. Vary the things. You begin to pray. I come before God, my Father. Whew. You could run for a while on that one, couldn't you? I once was a stranger, but I'm saved by God's grace. I become a son of God. Therefore, you delight to have me in your presence. I don't need to stay far off. I can approach the throne of God because you're my father. What a blessing that is. And you come to Christ Jesus, the Lord. All four terms are vitally important. He is the Lord. We are submissive to his will. You come that way. What I'm going to pray for now, I'm praying before Christ who is my Lord. But also, I'm praying to the one who has all authority. Who else would you go to? The Lord, the one who's been given all authority and the name of every name. You think of Jesus. What does that mean? Saves people from their sins. He's the Savior, but He's also the man. He's your friend. He's touched with the feeling of your infirmities. You think if you pray through these things one by one, Father, Lord, Jesus, Christ, what does that mean? He's our mediator. He's our Messiah. He's our days man. He reconciles us to God. His blood avails for our sins. We come in that way. Oh, what a start to prayer. You see that? Hi, hi impoverished is our prayer life so often and we fail to begin upon these foundations and I'm very much pointing the finger at myself in this regard. You get the prayer and immediately you, you're so overwhelmed by all the needs and all the burdens. It would do us so well to take some time to say, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we'd find ourselves greatly encouraged when it came to the prayers. The source of blessing and then finally, just note, passing comment, the steadfastness in performance. It says there, I have remembrance of thee without ceasing, verse number three, in my prayers night and day. You know, to say that with a pure conscience, that's remarkable. One of the challenges I certainly get is that I get, I get, I get emails, messages. People say, can you pray for this? Can you pray for that? It's fairly easy to forget these things. There's times I could, not, I could not say this. You asked me to pray for this, but I've forgotten in this area. I neglected this issue. For Paul to say this, it's a wonderful word of God's grace, and we pray that God would help us all to do this. This is right and proper. To love each other, and therefore to pray without ceasing in prayers night and day. Again, please note the pattern there. Morning and evening prayer as part of what it is to a righteous man. The steadfastness in performance of this prayer. Well, time's gone. Quick point application. Two things. I've highlighted it in, in your outline there. Two things to highlight. First of all, please, treasure the relationships that are created by grace. I, I, I wonder, I, I just pray that by God's grace, this would strike home. Natural families are often divided. They're divided because one party doesn't know the Lord and the other does. They're divided by sin. And there's a breakdown of natural families. We ought to treasure the family of God. People say blood is thicker than water. Loyalties are often had for the natural family, not the spiritual family. We ought to treasure what it is when God brings us together in the house of God as a family of God. This is your eternal family. This is the family that will last forever and forever. And so I said already that our burden, yes, our burden is that our natural families would also join with us in union, but we ought to treasure, as Paul does here, my dearly beloved son. Without any genetic connection, he has this treasure of a son born in the faith. I treasure these things. And secondly, treasure the continuity in God's saving purposes. Reformation times, Paul's times, treasure God's work in continuity in His saving grace. Paul labors in the footsteps of his forefathers. Timothy was nurtured by a godly mother and a grandmother. And Paul is now passing on the baton to Timothy. There's the recognition here of the continuity in God's saving purposes. Young people, don't despise your heritage your Reformation heritage. You've been raised in a church that values the Reformation. We really stand upon the shoulders of giants. Don't despise your heritage in the free church. It's not perfect, but it's genuine, and it's founded upon truth. One of the challenges we face in youth is the idea that the older generation got it wrong. I felt like that. What did they know? What a mess they made of the church. I'll do it better. Which generally means I'll do it differently. And it often means that I'll do it by my own inventions. The forefathers sinned and made mistakes. But don't presume, don't presume they're unfaithful to the Word of God. Value your heritage. You're not the first person to read the Bible. And we stand upon the shoulders of giants. Have a burden for God to raise up men to labor for Christ in our denomination. That's this continuity idea. Have a burden for these young men to be raised and then pray for their nurturing and support their nurturing financially. And rejoice in the truth of the gospel. The good news didn't begin with us and it shouldn't end with us. See, Christ's work is sufficient to save the soul. That truth abides in all generations. It's true today. May God help us to understand and apply these things in our lives for His His glory. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father, we thank You again for Your kindness in the Word. And we pray You'd help us to think through these matters clearly. So so much to consider in these few verses. And, O Lord, we pray that as we read them again, that you'd help us to draw those lines of application that are particularly relevant to our own lives, that this would indeed be a word in season, and that as we've thought before, that we'd, we'd take a brick away with us to put upon the wall of our edification, and build us up in our faith even today, and use thy word to that end. We thank you again for your kindness. Bless us, enrich us, help us even to disciple each other, to mentor each other, that there will be a passing on of truth. Give us grace, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.